Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Semino, and with me, as sometimes, is a very special guest. It's a special guest you know from previous episodes. This is actually the final episode in our crime miniseries that we are doing. So that means, of course, that it is the great, great Dr. Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello, Stephen. Doing outstanding. We have Dr. Chris here, of course, to talk about the 2007 film No Country for Old Men. We are talking crime films. And this is one of the most acclaimed ones of recent years. It was a Best Picture winner. It was renowned. It is widely considered one of the Coen Brothers' finest films. And they are crime connoisseurs. A lot of their films touch on crime in some aspects. And this one is certainly no exception. It is largely about it. But it is about many, many other things. It was a really fun one to unpack. One I definitely didn't get as a younger person, at least on first viewing. But I think is a little clearer the more you watch it. Interestingly, I think we both walked away from it, uh, this viewing, realizing that maybe the themes were not as hidden from us or maybe not as complex as we thought when we first viewed the film. And and that's certainly no knock against the Coen brothers. Um, I think this is, uh, I probably haven't seen this in five, six years. This may be one of the best executed um, shot for shot, frame for frame, scene for scene films I've ever seen. I have to say that of all the films we've watched in this little series, this is probably the best one and by a long shot. I mean, I don't think it's even close. Uh, and the other ones were good, too. Yeah. I don't think you're saying they were bad. This one just stands out head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah, I think the, from a technical aspect, and we'll get into the kind of the themes we picked up from the movie, but from a te- technical aspect, every scene in this film is near perfect. Um, the way it's shot, the dialogue, the acting... The, the casting of the actors who, who carry out the dialogue and the scenes, every part of this film worked and worked to near perfection. And, you know, something that uh, we both commented on afterwards was that there's not an ounce of fat on the film. Uh, it's just every bit of the, uh, of the film, every scene, every line is worthwhile, is excellent. And I really, I struggle to find any flaw in the film itself, big, you know, from a big picture standpoint. And I think what you're getting at when you're talking about, you know, it being relatively clear and not that hard to unpack, and, and sort of combining that with what I said about it being a little opaque the first time, I think it's just the kind of movie where it's not instantly apparent the first time you see it what it's talking about, because I think it's just a lot of cinematic misdirects. I think it's a lot, you, you, I think the first viewing at least, I thought it was almost entirely about Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem going toe-to-toe with obviously a bunch of Tommy Lee Jones on the side. And then I think when you sit down and watch it again, you realize that's sort of like a sideshow for the larger themes. But I think what you're saying is that the themes are all very there. Like, if you watch it with a critical eye and you've seen it a few times, there's not a... It's just nothing is really tucked away. There's not like... It's not a lot about symbolism that has many meanings. Like, it is pretty... It is indirect but definitive what most of it means and what it's trying to say. So yeah, before we get into the kind of themes of the, the film and, you know, the novel as well, I'm just curious, what was your take on the technical achievement of the film? Like, do you think this was... I mean, it's, it's, I think it's as good as advertised. Like, I think they are wonderful filmmakers. I think they, they have a style and a tone to them that I, you know, is, is so prevalent in everything they do. Like, it's not reinventing the wheel to say that at all. But this is, this does tension so well. And the lack of music, and like they just, they, 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 I think it is exemplary in, in mirroring their sort of tone to a like sort of action thriller format, you know, or a crime movie. Like it's, you know, like, like I said, they've, they do a lot of crime movies, and a lot of them are more explicit, like, or about crime in terms of like mobsters, or like, you know, uh, small time crooks, or like, and this one is about like, you know, this one is more about like it takes a, an event of crime and then extrapolates that and and draws meaning from it from the perspective of a crime fighter and a a crazy uh assassin and a war veteran who's trying to make a buck like i just think it is it, it it's amazing how well they adapt someone else's work and someone else's sort of format into their own tone and also make it so tense as a wonder i think it's like really the best of both worlds in that way like it does everything so well when you look at the other uh, coen brother movies that uh, you and i both enjoy they have a very personal take on crime. You know, they, they're not necessarily making big uh, sweeping indictments of the criminal justice system or society as a whole necessarily. They're more 
interested in the the human element of what drives a person to commit crime. What does the commission of the crime do to the person? I'm thinking specifically about you know William H Macy's character in Fargo. We see this man become essentially broken by you know it's such a even though he is without question the bad guy in this film. By the end of it, you're almost you feel sorry for him when they finally come and catch him, and you see him squealing for his life. And that's not so much the the you know the, the process of getting caught for his crime. It's what the commission of that crime and the subsequent uh, you know comedy of errors that that occurred afterwards did to him as a human being. Um, and most recently, you know, you see uh, this, and I guess the Ballad of Buster Scruggs was his, their most recent film. If I'm if I'm not forgetting anything, I believe so. But all of those small you know short vignettes are very personal views of of whatever the vignette are talking you know are talking about there and the uh you know take something even as comical as burn after reading that's another one where it's not it's not a sweeping indictment on anything it's simply looking at human beings in the commission of funny and stupid but crimes nonetheless uh, I, I think they're probably the best filmmakers i'm aware of that that take this personal intimate view of of deviancy and crime uh looking very closely at the people doing it and i think that's what makes this movie i think you put it really well and that's what makes this movie so special is because it is still that like the everything with the three main characters bardem and brolin and tommy lee feels very personal and very intimate and is about what they're going through in that moment but there are they, they hint and also directly show the larger institutions behind them. Obviously, Tommy Lee is, works as a police officer, so he is part of law enforcement. There's also the Mexican cartel. There's also Stephen Root's character and Woody Harrelson and this sort of business side to it. Like, this is one where they take, they, they allow the personal element to play out, and it is like the draw of the movie, but they're also, if not commenting on larger elements, like using them in the story to reinforce that what, what is going on goes so far beyond what these people are going through. And I think to use that to get into the themes, I think one of the ways it does that so well is Timely Jones's character is famously exhausted, tired of the world, tired of crime, thinks it's gotten out of control. This is just a whole new... He didn't sign up for this. It's a whole new world that he can't fathom anymore. And it's, it's interesting, and just the stuff he finds so distasteful and so bothersome is very gruesome and difficult to handle, but there's also so much going on, but all, all those things behind the scenes sort of escape his notice. Like, it's almost like he, he can see what's in front of him and finds it, you know, and stories he hears and just that reinforce his worldview, but he also maybe has not taken a step back to think about, like, what, the, you know, the actual horrifying elements underlying it, which is businesses involved in crime and cartels operating massive operations. Like, it's almost like he can't and, and doesn't bother to fathom the big stuff and instead is focusing intimately on what just he sees in front of him that makes him so bothered. And I think that's, that's just a, a small kernel into what it's about and what Tommy Lee's uh, upset about, but I think it's just, it's a way they, they, the Coens approach a movie that they don't traditionally do. I don't think, a lot of times it really is just about who, you, who these people are in front of you and what they represent, whether it's in Brown's reading the government or whatever, like they're just sort of silly stand-ins for, you know, real people. But in this one, I think there is a strong hint of like what is actually a seamy underbelly that maybe you wouldn't get in some of their other works. I think my favorite scene in the movie is the, the conversation he has with the old cat man uh, and I, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, the guy with how, an unknown number of cats uh, in his house. And it's my favorite scene and also my favorite line where Tommy Lee Jones is kind of discussing how today's criminals or today's crime is just beyond him. And uh, it's something we've never seen before as a, as a country, as a society, as lawmen. And the old cat man corrects him very quickly and says something to the effect of, everything you just said that there is vanity and that's one of the themes that we both took from this film is this concept of the arrogance of thinking that the time one lives in is particularly special Uh, we as human beings as any living creature we are alive for such a blink of an eye in the cosmic tale Uh, and it is extraordinarily arrogant for any of us and we're all guilty of it But for any of us to think that the short period of time we exist uh, in the universe, that we deserve to change something, we deserve to have an impact, we deserve to have made a difference, because that 
helps our ego out. That in and of itself is an arrogant thought. And what I think, you know, Cormac McCarthy in the, the novel, which we've both read, and the Coen brothers in the film get across very well in that scene with that particular line using the term vanity, is this idea that Tommy Lee Jones' character is guilty of what we're all guilty of and guilty of what men have been guilty of since the dawn of recorded time to think that the period that they live in this particular moment in the millions and billions of years on earth this is particularly troublesome this is particularly unsolvable and i tommy lee jones you know have to bear the weight of this unseen um, never occurred before moment in time and what the filmmakers and what the author of the book are telling us is this is not new. This is not special. Human beings and the violence that we're capable of, this has been the story you know, for hundreds and thousands of years. You know, this is a quote-unquote Western, but you know, if it weren't cartels and, and heroin, it would be cattle and grazing land that these men would be killing each other over. Uh, so... The, the title, No Country for old, old Men, kind of hits that on the nose of this story that Tommy Lee Jones is, is spinning for us is not new. It's the story of every old man since the dawn of recorded history. Yeah, and you made a great point to me today that I hadn't really thought about a ton because we were discussing Javier Bardem's character, Anton Chigurh. He's It's one of the most heralded supporting performances probably ever Academy Award winning, like, it's, you know, we already talked about the Joker in this little series. I think Bardem is better than Ledger. We can talk about that a little later. But regardless of that, it's, it's they're both celebrated, and Bardem is, is terrific in this movie. And I, you know, it's easy to watch this movie and regard him as, like, the psychopath to end all psychopaths. Like, he's just, he's cold, he's calculated, he, he lives by this code that is clearly a ruse exposed at the end, but still a code that he adopts nonetheless. And just goes on this undefinable rampage for seemingly no reason, especially to the viewer. But one thing you noted too is like, and it ties in the themes we were discussing whether is, you know, Chigurh a, a true lifetime of menace. And you were saying, well, Woody Harrelson's character, Seth Carson, says something like, he's just, you know, your everyday psychopath. And or what's the exact term? I mean, he's a, well, he's a murdering psychopath, but so what? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's a fun line in the moment. Like, it's just, but the Coen brothers don't do fun lines. This, or, or at the very least, that a lot of their fun lines have deeper meanings beyond just being fun. And I think if you really watch the movie, what you take away is, and even with Woody Harrelson's character, like, and, and the see me underbelly, there's a whole world out there that we don't see in this movie of murdering psychopaths. Like, in this crime, in, in the crime world that this movie is dictating, and certainly in the real world in its own right for sure, but there's just lots going on that we don't see and don't know about that is vicious and dark and scary. And as, as, as you know, violent as Anton Chigurh is in this movie, if you look at it that way, he's probably not the worst thing we've ever seen. Like, he's the worst thing in this moment. He certainly is shocking. His decisions are certainly unpredictable in a lot of ways, at least to, like, a lawman who's following behind him and doesn't know where he's going to go next. But he is not, like you said, he is not, uh, it's not something that hasn't happened before in some context, close enough similarly. He's not a once-in-a-lifetime revelation. Like, he certainly is wild and crazy and murderous, but... If you really, you know, take the world for what it is and look at it as objective as possible, as as the the handicapped Catman does, he's like, "There's this has happened before, and it'll happen again." Yeah, it's interesting. We we were chatting about this before the pod about how this movie has this backdrop of what we called big violence, you know, state-sanctioned violence. So you have these characters that are all Vietnam veterans. So a, a war of one nation state against another nation state is the highest form of state-sanctioned violence that exists. Uh, then you have this added layer of, I guess this takes place in 1980, and this is kind of when the war on drugs is starting to heat up. And in the backdrop this entire time is this rise of the cartel, rise in violence because of the cartels. Um, and I, somebody will have to fact-check me on this, but I believe this is also when uh, the cocaine coming from Colombia, the the uh, Gulf of Mexico route into Florida was getting cut off by the uh, the DEA 
And the Mexican cartels started allowing the drugs to run through Mexico through the southern border uh, of the United States, which led to a rise in violence. Uh, and that's a very short way of explaining a very complex issue. But that is the backdrop. That's the big violence surrounding what is actually mostly a story of what we called small violence, small, intimate violence. And what we both kind of walked away after seeing this again uh, feeling was what we were actually watching is an episode of like National Geographic, right? Uh, this is, again, another theme of simply predator and prey, the simplest of notions. Uh, that can exist in a movie is Cormac McCarthy reminding us that the animals that are human beings, we are not above the, the very simple delineation between predator and prey. What you're watching is Anton Chigurh, who is a clear predator. And the fact that he uses a, a weapon that kills cattle to kill human beings is, again, another on-the-nose reference to how he views humanity. The rest of humanity, to him, is nothing but prey. And he is a pure predator. Now, the reason that this, this kind of intimate small violence is so interesting to us is because he's not going after prey in this particular book or film. He's going after a man in uh, Josh Brolin's character who is also quite a bit of predator himself. And they don't make it explicit in the movie, but they do drop enough hints that this man is a, a war vet, the Vietnam War, which, again, another big violence backdrop to a small violence encounter. Uh, he himself, from the very beginning, the opening scene of him is him hunting. And he's got all these hunting skills, and he understands firearms. And when he comes upon this horrific scene that 99% of us would run away from, he keeps his cool. Because because his two tours in Vietnam have trained him to not be scared by that moment. He's seen dead bodies. He's probably killed men before. He understands in the jungle warfare and the intimate fighting that occurred in the Vietnam War, he understands what it means to be hunted and to hunt another human being. And so we're very quickly uh, taught that uh, Llewellyn Moss is no prey. He himself is a predator. Unfortunately for him, he is caught up in, the, in a web of big violence that truly is too big for him. But as a foil to Anton Chigurh, who is used to killing people who are simply prey, Llewellyn Moss is actually much more than Anton Chigurh bargained for. Absolutely. And it's, that's made very clear. I f I'd forgotten about the one scene where Moss gets the drop on Chigurh and, almost, and hurts him very badly and almost... Probably and almost kills him. Like probably comes pretty close when they're fighting outside of the the famous uh, hotel scene where Chigurh walks down the hall and turns the light off and shoots the door out. Like the end of that scene, Llewellyn could could get him, could win. Like it's not inconceivable. But as you noted, I think one of the things I like the most about this movie, and and one thing I didn't necessarily get, and I still don't necessarily get in a certain sense, but is that Llewellyn meets his fate not because he loses to Chigurh, but because the cartel just catches up with him and. Kills him and drives away real fast in a truck. Like, it's very, we don't see it. It happens off screen. We, Timely Jones shows up and he's dead in a pile of blood on the grounds. And then Chigurh wins. Like, it's a very, you know, and, but I think what we took away from it and sort of what you hinted at is this is, you know, in, in a, and again, in a very non Cohen Brothers way, there is this one on one with Tommy Lee Jones overseeing is like the, um, the core of the film in terms of what pushes it forward and the most exciting elements and really what everyone remembers and what everyone likes about it. But the movie ends, you know, with Llewellyn dying 20 minutes before the actual ending. And then it's just, you know, a relatively quiet, contemplative Tommy Lee Jones movie for the last 25 minutes. And it really takes a step back and breathes after that. And really, and, and, and there's several conversations that sort of hammer home the larger themes about, you know, is this world a mess? Is it not? Or like it's, it sort of really starts to examine that kind of stuff. And I think that's genius. And I think a lot of what's genius about that is subverting those expectations, is giving us these two iconic characters and then Tommy Lee Jones as the pursuer and assuming that it's going to end in the way all movies end. It's, it's a genre that, well, like we said, the Coen brothers have dipped their toe in before, but never in this intensive a way, I would say. And so when we get to what is ostensibly the ending or what we think is going to be the ending in the big confrontation, the air is out of the balloon. And then all of a sudden, I feel like you start wondering what these other minutes mean, you know, what this means, why it matters. And I think in 
2007 when I saw this, I don't think I I was blo- I just didn't know what to think. I didn't know why this was happening. It just was not what I was accustomed to expect. And and to the Coen Brothers' credit, it was not what they built up for you, you know, for the, in the hour and 30 minutes before that. Like, every indication is you're going to get some sort of outcome that is is in line with these sort of movies and would be incredibly satisfying in its own right, I would say, if they, if they had... Obviously, McCarthy wrote the book right in this way anyway, but it would have been it would have been fascinating if they had somehow done something like that. But in their Coen Brothers way, of course, they're not going to do that, and they they told the movie the way it should be told. And then I think you take a step back and wonder why is this this big violence, this big you know this this, this uh, violence as a business, this state sanctioned violence sort of wins, and these small guppies, as predatory as they are, as violent as they are, in the big pond, they just don't really stand a chance. Like Chigurh is this wild card; he's probably going to be fine, but like it's it. Re- I think it really makes you take a step back and wonder what the hell just happened. And I think in some way the Tommy Lee character also, I would say, has to take a step back and perhaps reassess. What he's been seeing, given that, you know, not that this hasn't reinforced the the utter depravity of the world around him, but I think he's also just like, I think he also wonders what happened or what's going because he was a step behind almost the whole time. Like he was taking it very lackadaisically. All of a sudden at the end, he's forced to contemplate what he saw on his way out the door. Well, what, you know, what did we say he was, uh, you know, after watching this together? He is a game warden. You know, he, he is this entity that exists within, you know, we'll call it a game reserve, where he's watching these two predators go after one another and feeling wholly helpless to do anything about it. Uh, You know, when a game warden begins his work in a game preserve till the day he exits his work as the game warden in a game preserve, the animals, the predator, the prey, that relationship will never change. It will always be the same, no matter how much he wants the lions to stop eating the cute gazelles this is simply the nature of the things he has decided to be the game warden of and just like he can't change the behavior a game warden can't change the behavior of animals or predators or prey tommy lee jones cannot change the behavior of human beings in the short time he has to exist on earth and it's interesting to think that i remember you and i both felt the first time we watched this we were so startled by the way it ended right But we're taking this journey with Tommy Lee Jones where he is trying to make sense in his waning years. You know, he's not a young man in this film. He's approaching retirement. And I think in the book they make it very clear that he is much closer to retirement than they do in the movie. Uh, But he is, just like we are, he is doing his damnedest to figure out what the hell is going on around him with the way the humans are treating one another. Just as we, at the end of this film, are trying to figure out, well, what the hell did we just watch? What the heck? You know, there has to be a reason for this. There has to be a story. And again, it's this human arrogance to think that we are owed an explanation, that we must understand what is before us, just the way Tommy Lee Jones did. Uh, And the truth is, and what the Coen brothers and I think McCarthy are telling us at the end of this film is, you'll never get an explanation. There is no satisfying uh, end to the story that wraps everything up in a nice tight bow. Good ending, bad ending, feel good, not feel good, doesn't matter. All of this is senseless because there is no rational explanation for why animals behave the way they do that will satisfy human beings. They behave the way they do is because that's how they are built. And we simply have to accept that, just the way Tommy Lee Jones has to accept that long before he became a lawman and long after he dies, this is how humans will behave. But I can't help but think about, and I think that's all very, very true, but I can't help but think about the conversation Tommy Lee Jones' character has with the local lawman after Llewellyn dies. And they're like at a diner and they're talking, and the local lawman is, you know, Tommy Lee Jones has spent the whole movie complaining about, you know, in some, in, in direct and indirect ways about the state of the world and how he's ready to go and da da da. But then he's talking to this lawman who simplifies it in this almost embarrassing way and says, you know, it's about kids not saying please and thank you, right? Or ma'am and sir. Sir and ma'am. Yes, yeah, sir and, and ma'am. Having purple hair and all this <laughs> yeah. stuff. Like, he tripped, he just, and I think what Tommy Lee Jones is like, struck by i would imagine is like he just saw this like gangland execution of this this guy he was trying to help 
And it's like, and the, and this guy is telling him like, you know, it's because of pig. And Tommy Jones nods along with that guy and goes, yeah, you know. But then he, then the next scene is we go to the guy in the wheelchair who I think he goes to that guy because he's like, I think he's like, you know what? These aren't maybe these aren't satisfying answers. Like he's not getting. I think he still wants that reinforcement. He still wants to believe that this isn't the that this world is out of his reach. But I think he's also like, in in his final now that he's seen what he's seen and he's ready to wrap up. I think he's searching for more and i think hopefully i would imagine that is maybe a less satisfying you know because that cop is just so oversimplified like to it like again well, to like, Tommy Lee jones participates in it yes he does Tommy Lee jones is the one who says when and i'm paraphrasing he says something effective when young men and women stop saying sir and ma'am that's when society gets broke i know so he's participating in this conversation they're both like old men grasping for straws both of them likely in the same phase of their life trying to come up with an explanation for why the world is the way it is and they use these easy examples that are so you know that again is also another story that is told in every generation is the older outgoing generation take easy to pick on components of the new upcoming generations to say that thing that purple hair that lack of sir and ma'am that lack of respect for your elders whatever the hell they choose that's the reason why this inexplicable violence exists or take your pick of the inexplicable things that occur in society. But again, that just like the story of violence in all of human history, the story of taking easy routes to blame or taking, uh, you know, blaming it on easy, but not necessarily applicable things is also a tale as old as time. And I, but I, 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 maybe I'm just being optimistic towards the character, but I, but I think Tommy Lee Jones's character, who I keep calling Tommy Lee Jones's character, when of course his name is Ed Tom Bell. <laughs> but, but I like to think he's smarter. Like I think part of him wants that to be the case. I think part of him does engage in those conversations because it's just a good old conversation you have with a fellow lawman about the state of the world. But I think the fact that he seeks out his friend after the facts and has a more genuine, detailed conversation is because part of him knows that's not enough. You know, like it's simple, it's easy, and he could hang his hat up tomorrow and just say those darn kids. And it would be fine. Like it would, he would have, he would have, but I don't think he would have peace with that. I don't think that would sit with him in full. And I think he seeks out that. And, and we certainly get to see that next conversation because obviously we are are then told to believe to re- finally realize that it's not enough. We didn't know that already. But I think he needs more too. I think he's smarter than that. I think he's just burned out and disillusioned. And so when in doubt, he grabs on those easy answers. But I think he knows there's more to it than just that. And that also, you know, goes into. And I, I don't know. This is a super amateur hot take on the author of Cormac McCarthy. Of, uh, I've read uh, The Road, I've read Blood Meridian, and I've read this, No Country for Old Men. Uh, and he is, I mean, for my money, the best author of the nature of violence that I've ever read. And I think he also, as an author, he himself depicts this idea of the depression that comes along with being too smart to accept bullshit. Uh, And I think we're seeing that play out in Ed Tom Bell. It's very easy for somebody lacking a ton of intelligence to answer these difficult questions with easy answers that don't actually make a ton of sense. And what we're watching is, and I, I don't know how much of Ed Tom Bell is, is Cormac McCarthy himself trying to sort out the violent nature of humanity or the, the depressing parts of the nature of humanity. But there is kind of this idea of, you know, you brought it up. Ed Tom Bell, is, he's a thinker. He's introspective. He looks at uh, the things that he's done throughout his life. He's very good at his job, too. Everything we can tell. Very like, good at his job. He's behind these two guys, but that's not for lack of... Tra- I mean, it's a little for lack of trying because he's old and doesn't care so much. And he's reading the newspaper in the diner a lot, but yeah. he's still, when he's on his game, he's as good he's as anybody. Yeah. yeah, he's very sharp. Uh, and probably was even sharper when he was younger. But I think he also... De- again, he depicts this idea of anybody that has a certain amount of intelligence cannot use the opiate... They say like religion is the opioid of the masses or whatever. I would all I would expand that out, not just religion, but the opiate of easy answers to difficult questions. He himself cannot accept that. He's too smart to accept it. And now he has to live with the fact that the answers that he is coming to from the start of the film till the end of the film are not satisfying, they're not easy, they're not happy, they suck, and they're also very humbling because he has to acknowledge 
that these answers are in perpetuity as long as the human race is the human race exists. Yeah, and and that sort of in a way brings us to the end of the movie, which is uh, certainly very polarizing when I saw it, and it's maybe the least <laughs> bang that a movie has ever ended with. But it's great, and it's Tommy Lee Jones as it's Sheriff Bell relaying his dreams to his wife. And I one thing I was struck by in watching it this time is. It's not a dream. You know, sometimes in movies, again, subverting expectations, a character reveals a dream to a loved one, a a spouse, whatever, and it's this, like, dramatic revelation. It means something. It's a metaphor, usually, but it's a powerful metaphor that the other character really gives a shit about hearing, (laughs) and it answers some questions. In that scene, his wife is almost apathetic towards what he's saying like and he i remember him he's incredibly like he's got his sad Tommy Lee jones face he looks very downtrodden his wife is like they're like enjoying retirement like and he's trying to like hang out with her and she's like i don't want to hang out with you <laughs> like you're a fucking sad sack and then he tells her this story and she's just like she's listening like a dutiful wife but she doesn't like care and like it just does not and then we don't even get a reaction it's just like it, i think to me it says so much like this is a man who is internalizing internalizing these thoughts and will probably be doing so for the rest of his life which probably isn't very long unfortunately for that character i feel like he's gonna waste away without his his career he seems like one of those guys who needs to work but i just think he is just it, it's a battle that is within him like it is not something that even his loved ones are on this journey with him you know like he is truly just trying to sort this out in his own and like you said probably never will and wants the easy answers but can't accept the easy answers and is now just and will never you know will never be satisfied and also won't even get a chance to even suss it out any further because he's left the force behind and so i think it's a very sad ending and i think but it's very appropriate like it is because the movie is as you said timely it's a great observation he is sort of like the game warden he's the overseer he's just he's trying to pull meaning from this what ends up being his one of his last if not his last cases and he doesn't know, and nobody knows, and we're left with uncertainty. I think as an audience, at least the first time around, that's a tough one to, to sit with in a satisfying way. But I think when you watch the movie, it's the only ending it could possibly be. Like, it's not, it's not building towards a shootout. It's not building towards anything cathartic or, or anything with any finality. It's just life goes on, and then the cyclical nature of it. They're gonna, if, not, if not Sheriff Bell, someone else is going to have this same conversation and go through the same thing. Anton Chigurh is out there. He's going to go kill somebody else. Like There's going to be another Llewellyn Moss, a varying skill and fight, and the circle is going to continue anew. And it's depressing, but it's realistic. But isn't it interesting that you know that whole scene, that, that the, terminal, the, the very last scene of the film, is him trying to make sense of this dream that maybe has no sense to be made of it. Right. He very vividly describes it. And I think we both had the same reaction where we should be taking something from this. We should be seeing the deeper meaning. We think we're both smart people. But even now, you know, I watched it again. I don't know what the hell that last dream sequence means. And I probably never will. But again, it's it's the Coen brothers taking the audience on the same ride that uh, Ed Tom Bell is on, uh, where he is as much as he humanly can, is seeking meaning in these things, including this last uh, dream he's had, just as the audience, we are seeking meaning in what he's telling us, but coming up short. And it ends abruptly, and we're all walking away with that same feeling of dissatisfaction. This story, this movie, it needed to have a neater ending. It needed to make more sense to us, just like... All the events within the movie to Ed Tom Bell needed to make sense, needed to have a story behind them, needed to have something that he could wrap his mind around. But the the sad truth is, and the difficult truth is, these things will never make that sense to him. They simply will be. And that's the same thing we feel as the audience at the end of the film. Yeah, and the Coen brothers aren't big ending guys anyway. Like, they rarely have a final scene that, like, packs a punch, you know? Like, usually, they, they, I think they, if I had to guess, and I've never read them say this, but I would imagine, they're, I, I imagine they're of the belief that, like, we just gave you a two-hour movie. Like, there's plenty of stuff there. <laughs> like, if you think the last three minutes matter that much, you're kind of a weirdo. Like Except when Steve Buscemi's ashes get spread at the end of <laughs> But the even Big that's Lebowski. not the ending, though, because oh, then, yeah, then yeah. they go back and the dude talks to Sam Elliott. That's and, you totally know? true, yeah, And the yeah. wood chipper in Fargo is not the last scene, 
like that's like that's like in a ending scene, but it's not like the final part of the movie. Like I just think there's usually some like a little bow on the end, you know? Like that's typically. Although I guess a serious man does end with a tornado about to kill everybody. But even then, there's a so, so like it doesn't. You don't see anything happen. There's just a a same sort of foreboding sense there of like something bad's gonna happen. Movie's over. Figure it out from there, you know? So I think that's definitely one of their things is they do not have any interest in in giving it to you uh, with a hard stop. And McCarthy's book ends the same way. So, like, this is one of the truer adaptations you're ever going to see. Like, they they nail, they nail incorporated their own tone frequently and then, like, the way the dialogue sort of flows and stuff. But otherwise, it's very faithful to his story, which I think is great. And I think that is, it's so cool to see them adapt something like that because, you know, they're very, they have their own thing. They're right original filmmakers. They, they certainly march to the beat of their own drum. To see them take something like this and do it so well, it felt like, to me, it also feels like a little bit of a challenge. Like sort of like True Grit was, I imagine. They're like, we're gonna take this and put our spin on it, and and sort of like make a hit, for lack of a better term. Like maybe our st- our stuff we make is a little more harder to decipher. Let's do a really good movie like that is like accessible somewhat to the masses, but also pick something that's inaccessible in its own right and mush it together and and see what comes of it. And I think it's great. Yeah, it really was kind of a perfect union of an author and filmmakers. I. I I struggled to think what other filmmaker could have done justice to the book. Um, I think the cachet they had was really big too. Like they didn't have to have an ending that was pleasant. You know, they didn't have to change no, it. No, by that point in Hollywood, yeah, they had already made their name. Yeah, no they one. And then this was one of their most, if not their most successful movies too. So I'm yeah. sure this like came a blank check for years to come to keep doing this. So let's let's also talk a little bit about what I think we both agree was maybe the most impressive part of the film was the casting. Just every single main character in this film was perfect. I I, I honestly struggled to think who would have been better in any of these roles. I don't think that actor exists. And we could start with, obviously, we've talked a lot about Tommy Lee Jones' character, who's kind of the narrator and the the lens we view this world through. Um, I can't think of a better actor uh, for that role. Uh, Javier Bardem at that point, I was not a big enough film nerd when this came out to have known who Javier Bardem was. This was my introduction to him. And I have to say, you know, we, you and I were chatting about this before the podcast about do we think the degree of difficulty was more for this role of Anton Chigurh or the Joker with Heath Ledger? And I think we both agreed Chigurh. I think this was a higher degree of difficulty that was executed even better, not taking anything away from Heath Ledger. But the other thing I found impressive about his performance uh, he's a Spaniard, and uh, English is a second language, and this is an incredibly nuanced, subtle, difficult role to pull off. And to pull it off in your second language, to me, is the most mind-blowing achievement that I'm extraordinarily impressed by. He doesn't say much, but what he says has to come out perfectly. It has to be it's succinct. He has to be short. He has to be menacing, like... And I, he speaks English pretty well, but it's still like, yeah, like the, and like some, I guess he doesn't say much, but some of those little monologues he goes on in about, you know, his own philosophy are detailed enough and have to carry this menace that I do not, and like this menace while also looking like a total weirdo at the same time and, and like saying shit that, that is truly, you know, within this guy's head, like he has a code again, that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but he uses it as an excuse to function and like, and he is just. And it's it's Bardem gives it a lot of humanity, for lack of a better term. He's still crazy. He's still you can't decipher him, but there is like maybe humanity isn't the right way to talk about it. But he just like doesn't. I don't know. Like he's magnetic. He's not a, he's not a cartoon character. Yes, that's a better way to put it. He's he like he has this compelling element to him that is not because like there, I think the reason I dock Ledger points is because he gets to just go wow and run around and make faces yeah. and like that's it's still very hard to do and like it's it that that's muted over time because we've just it just feels we can't imagine a world without Ledger as Joker. You right, know? but we also said like one of the thing the the scape he had at his. Uh, disposal that Bardem didn't is that in any given scene he could just be like fuck it I'm dialing it up to 11 in this scene and we'll just see how it looks Mm -hmm. and you know for some of those scenes it worked out beautifully and it was great Bardem didn't have that kind of freedom you know his entire performance had to be contained subtle controlled he could never dial it up to 12 with you know the, the character of Anton Chigurh so I just I it's one of my favorite performances in any film in in history. 
The, I am learning on Wikipedia right now that Mark Strong was on standby to take over the role because of potential scheduling issues. I assume you know Mark Strong? I know Mark Strong. That would yes. be not very good. I like Mark Strong a lot, too. Like, But that would sort of be... Like, Mark Strong with his wig on, I feel like is just silly looking. It's like, Mark Strong is a famous bald man. Yeah. And to slap this hair on, instantly I'd be taken out of it. Maybe it would look different if it was Mark Strong. But I just think there's there is... If he was the second choice... There was no second choice. Like, it's a totally yeah. different movie, and unfortunately a much worse one without anybody but Bardem in there. I did want Mark Strong to be Stannis Baratheon, and that never happens. So. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot. That's way more in his wheelhouse, yeah, though. That's, that's very Mark Strong. But Stephen Delane still did a great job. <laughs> he did. <laughs> and so then, you know, we had, so that's Chigur, and I think we both agree that one of the best performances we either of us have ever seen. And then we get to Llewellyn Moss, and at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Josh Brolin was not a big star at this point. I mean, he had been in Goonies, obviously. He had done child acting. But to my knowledge, this was his first big where he was a main character or, you know, he was a protagonist that drives the entire movie. I'm sure he was in a bunch of other stuff before this, but never to this degree. Um, yeah, this was right before... This was a little bit around... It looks like a little before American Gangster and W. So he was on a little bit of a stretch there, but yeah, the years before that... This weirdly catapulted him, you're right, because he's always been in stuff. Like, he was in Hollow Man. He was in a few things here and there, but not a ton of stuff. And, like, it really wasn't until he did it in The Valley of Allah. He did No Country Rolled Man. He did American Gangster. He did W. He did Milk. And then he was baked in the cake. Like, that was just, In The Valley of Allah is whatever. But the other four are big movies that are, were all Oscar, you know, contenders to some extent. And, yeah, all of a sudden he was rolling. And apparently Ledger was their first choice for Llewellyn Moss, but he didn't get it. And Brolin had to fight real hard for the role, which makes sense because it just, you know, I'm sure they were like, they were like, ooh, like Josh Brolin? And now they love Josh. He's in other Coen Brothers things too, so I think they are big fans of his. But, yeah, it took him a sec. And he's, he's great. He is so good in this movie at doing the Coen Brothers thing of saying quippy dialogue, A, which is great, but also revealing so much just in how he does things and why he does things. Like, there... So what we said before, there's there's very little wasted dialogue in a Coen Brothers movie. Is Every, like, thing you do matters. Like, every shot matters. What they put on screen matters. And they don't dole out information aggressively, if at all. Like, you, you pick up a lot based on a side dialogue, shit that doesn't really seem to matter, or just, like, the way they do things or where they put things or how they act or, like, there's so much of that. And I think Brolin is is great. Like, you get a sense very early on that he's form- that's formidable. And I think that's yes. something you really need to pick up right away, that this guy has chops without showing his, like, purple heart on the side of his door, you know? Like, and I think he is, he carries himself with a confidence that I think really adds to that. And you're like, all right, this guy's for real. Formidable, but very clearly in over his head. Yes. They, they strike that balance very well. And again, like, he has the moments of the small violence between him and Chigur where, you know, he does get a leg, you know, the upper hand on him in the hotel scene. But he doesn't even know about the big violence. That's right. the thing. Like, he has no idea what's... And, and, and it's, it's almost like when, when Carson Wells, when, when Woody Harrelson shows up, is when you sort of get, okay, this guy's fucked. I think yeah. even Brolin sort of gets, like, I might be fucked here because I think he sort of realizes, like, there's a lot more at play than just one guy chasing him around, you know? I don't think he's even... He may not even interact with the cartel at that point in any real way. Yeah. And it mirrors, again, it mirrors his... They don't go deeply into his experience in Vietnam, but I think it... it, it there's a nice ju- juxtaposition of the war of Vietnam. I'm sure he's in the jungle having this intimate hand-to-hand combat that we all hear about that occurred uh, during that war. And that's what he's undergoing with Shigur. But the grander you know, backdrop of that war is this giant big violence of state-sanctioned violence, the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what he doesn't quite understand not only just in Vietnam, I, I'm assuming, but also in the context of the war on drugs, the Mexican cartel, etc. He's involved in something that is bigger than him, that is overwhelming, that he is not cut out for, and eventually it's what ends up killing him. Uh, but again, I, his casting, I, I struggle to think of some, even Ledger, I'm sure he would have done fine, but it's, it's hard for me to imagine another actor being the perfect Llewellyn Moss the way he was. The Coen brothers are so good at picking the right person for a role. Like, Big Lebowski and Fargo, all those movies. Like, yeah. you can't literally... Someone else could do it, but they wouldn't do it as well. Like, it's one of those things you're like, why... Or at the very least, why would you even consider it, you know? It's like, that was so good. I don't even want to fathom the idea of someone else 
doing it? Why even bother? This guy did it so or this girl did it well, so they, well. And the, the really fascinating thing is they do it with these, at the t- I don't want to say no name, they weren't no names, but they weren't famous super A-list actors at the time. They do it there, but then you watch a movie like Burn After Reading, and whose idea was it to have Brad Pitt be this dumb jock idiot who's maybe like maybe my favorite part of that movie yeah. as a character? And who, spoiler alert, is murdered very yeah, like abruptly in the middle of the movie. Super dead at the so, end of it. Yeah. So they can take they can take less famous actors and make them you know have them do these incredible performances, but they can also take well known famous actors and also give them these memorable performances, like Malkovich in the same movie and Burn After Reading. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget Malkovich in that role, and he was already a very well established. Richard actor Jenkins is also great in Burn After Reading. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. We should do a Burn After. He's not a representative body. of hard bodies. I feel like <laughs> I feel like we've referenced Burn After Reading about a dozen times. Burn now. After Reading is very good. It's a classic yeah. film. And then even you know the sporting characters, uh, Woody Harrelson and um, what's her name, uh, his wife, Kelly McDonald. Kelly McDonald, both playing kind of they're role players in this movie, but they're spot on. They're perfect. Uh, they're, there's nothing. There's nothing they could have done better. I feel. Yeah, Kelly McDonald has a great the great final scene, her final scene with Chigurh, which. Yeah, in my memory, she intimidated him a little more than she did. He's not really that shook. He's just a little flummoxed by her refusal to flip the coin. But she, you know, for a, for a character who hasn't been in the movie area very much and usually just served as a catalyst for Llewellyn Moss to do this or that, she acquits herself very well. She doesn't back down. Like it's, And she plays it great. Like you, she, she sort of seems to accept the reality of the situation, but strongly uh, try and poke holes in this man's facade that he's like you don't have to live by this code and at the very least we do sort of realize at that point that he doesn't give a shit about his code like because because part of me was like oh if she refuses and i think that's why i remember this way i was like oh well if she talks him out of flipping the coin or reinforces that he she won't flip the coin his whole thing's gonna go in disarray and he's gonna not kill her and just abandon his thing but then you realize that as you know like he's cleaning his shoes off when he walks out he clearly killed her anyway so like the coin is just some shit he made up to to justify it or to like i don't know add some back who knows where his brain went with it but certainly clearly doesn't actually uh compel his decision making in any way yeah, it reminds me of like a cat playing with the mouse right before he kills it you know yeah he's gonna do it no matter what so i mean he doesn't he doesn't have to necessarily he will abide by the coin but at the same time if you deny the coin he will just do what he has to do anyway right but again it just shows his disdain and maybe not disdain but his just disregard for the value of human life this is all a game to him to a certain extent he's he will lose no sleep either way. Uh, it's a little bit of fun for him or this person dies. You know, The one thing I will say is I do – this is not a short movie. It's a, it's a 122, so it's a little, little over two hours. But I'd say it's a tight 120. Like it really, tight 120, baby. It does not feel long. I would actually have not minded a little more Stephen Root or Woody Harrelson. I don't think we need more. I think their, their roles are fine for what they are. But I like both of them, and I feel like there could have been a little like I wouldn't have minded if they'd find a way to give them a little more screen time. But it like it's there's really no fat on here. Like it's a five star movie. It's a best picture. It I think appeals to people like us who want to nitpick something and take it apart and see what it makes it tick. I think it appeals to a casual filmgoer who just wants to see a good thriller, you know. And I think they would probably be a little more even going forward, like, concerned about the ending and not really understand. But I think they smartly would probably not also, like, well, that was still a great movie. I don't totally get the ending. Probably some artsy bullshit, you know? And they yeah. would just, they would move right off from there. But it's, 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 again, it's this fascinating kind of flip you on your head where you watch a movie that's really well made by good filmmakers with a great story, and you're left wondering, there is, you know, there must be a deeper meaning here. And nine times out of ten, there is a deeper meaning that, I or you or anybody is just simply not smart enough, not savvy enough, not educated enough to pick up. And that's great. That's what makes this stuff fun is that there's always something new to pick up on subsequent watches or the older you get, the more the the more educated you get, the more nuance you can pick up. This movie, this film, the book, it's the opposite. You walk away from this film feeling like there's something more I should be understanding. And the Coen brothers and Cormac McCarthy are telling you, like, no, 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 no. You saw it and you get it. This is the inexplicable, simple, heinous violence that is inherent in the human mind, in human culture, in the species of humanity. It's the same shit you see on Nat Geo played out in a modern, you know, human societal environment or jungle. 
And I think that's just the coolest thing in the world, that the older you get, the more simple you realize the film is, and it nev that knowledge doesn't detract in any way whatsoever at how brilliantly this was made. Yeah, like you said, simple. It's it's simple and, and but but it's not simple at the same time. Like you know, it's just it's just there. It's very there for you to, if you enjoy it. And I think that's great. It's a it's a wonderful film. It's a classic. The Coen Brothers are great, and it's a great wrap up for our crime series here, Chris. It was so fun to watch these movies. This among the best. They're all pretty good, and I think that it's been fascinating to see how these directors and writers depicts crime. I think it. Uh, there's some nuance too. I think we made some good choices, and I think we picked ones that really attack from different areas of the spectrum, which is nice. Yeah, there's a ton of fun. Um, looking forward to doing more in the future, and maybe they'll be crime, maybe they won't. Yeah, um, we can do whatever we want. We're not beholden to any sort of rules. Absolutely. Uh, but this was, pro I think this is the best one to end on. Um, yes. It's the most well-made, uh, without question, by far. Uh, the one that I think we both feel most satisfied watching, the one we feel best encapsulates um, what our idea of good filmmaking is. Um, so, great film. I have no complaints about it. I have nothing negative to say about it. I thought it was spectacular. And, um, yeah, it was fun. You bet. And if you want to listen to more episodes on Chris and I talking crime, you can find them at inrealdeep.com or you subscribe to the In Real Deep podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere podcasts are. We are there. So subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy all of our episodes. There's a whole bunch up there, and they're very, very good. And like Chris said, there is probably more Dr. Chris to come. So got to subscribe, keep an eye out, and there will be some good content coming to you from myself and Andrew or from myself and Chris or others. Who knows? It's a grab bag. It's a wild card these days. So join us and find out. Chris, thanks for joining us. It was a real treat. Can't wait to have you back again soon. My pleasure, Steve. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. We'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Adios.